I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Alex Panetta. You might want to buckle up because we are about to take a wild ride on a story with improbable twists and turns. It's about Grammy-winning rapper Praz Michelle from the Fugees, who was convicted last week of political conspiracy, witness tampering, and failing to register as an agent of a foreign government, China. The story involves a multi-billion dollar embezzlement scheme and campaign finance fraud and mysterious contacts with the Chinese government. We'll have cameo appearances from Barack Obama, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Marlon Brando's missing Oscar statue. It even offers a potential lesson for Canada. I've got the journalist Michael Ames with me. He interviewed Pros Michel extensively for Rolling Stone magazine, and he's going to explain why the former Fuji now faces a maximum possible sentence of 20 years in prison. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Well, thank you. So this surreal saga starts with two men at a nightclub in 2006. A promoter asks Prakazrel Michel, a.k.a. Praz, to come hang out with a young Malaysian man he calls a whale, a high roller. Praz reluctantly agrees, and he sees this whale spend massive amounts of money at this club. What happened? <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's um, quite a memorable way to uh, meet someone who will figure large in his life. So Praz gets to this club, and he sees uh, what I guess <laughs> people are accustomed to seeing in a New York City nightclub at late night, which was a bunch of young Wall Street bros getting getting hammered. And um, these Wall Street guys were also paying money to sort of control the the party that night, the club. They were paying money to use the microphone and get up there and announce things. So, you know, they slip the MC some cash. They go up there and they say, we're the richest people in the club. So we're going to buy everybody a drink. And everybody's, you know, <laughs> screaming and shouting. And, and Praz tells me that he notices that this moment doesn't sit very well with this young Asian <laughs> fellow wearing glasses and the thing seems kind of quiet and mellow. And all of a sudden he says he wants the mic and the promoter <laughs> says, well, you got to pay a bunch of money. It's not really our, our, our thing. And he said, well, I'll, I'll pay the money. And he gives hands over $20,000 cash and he gets oh, on the microphone <laughs> and he says, I hear there's people in this club who think they're the richest people in the club. And they're going to buy everyone a drink. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll buy everyone in this club a bottle. And this is when bottles cost thousands of dollars. So, you know, wow, the crowd goes wild and, and the Wall Street guys get back on and they say, well, we'll buy everybody two bottles. And then Jolo get, slips him another $20,000 and he gets on and he has his final say on the matter. He says, you know, I'm not into this back and forth nonsense. Uh, so I'll tell you what, I want to buy every bottle in this club. If there's a, if there's, if it, I want every 
liquor bottle, every beer bottle, every juice bottle, every water bottle. If there's a bottle with liquid in it, I'm going to buy it. And <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I want to send someone over to cross the street to the club there, and I'm going to buy every bottle in that club too. <laughs> Amazing. So this man, Jolo, had worked on some big business deals in Malaysia, and more recently, he was involved in creating something called the 1MDB Fund, stands for One Malaysia Development Berhad. It's a sovereign wealth fund, a fund Malaysia's government could use to invest and grow the nation's money. Uh, but Lowe used this fund to make himself very, very rich. So what happened? Because he was the architect in many ways of that fund, you know, he knew how to get in the back door. He knew how to move money around and he just simply started embezzling it. Now, I say it's simple now, but it wasn't that simple. It was complicated and he found some loopholes in the international banking system and he found ways. I mean, he was a smart guy and he went to one of the best business schools in the United States, the Wharton School of Business, the same business school that our former president Trump graduated from. And and I guess if your question was, what did he start doing with that money? He started spending it um, obscenely or you know extravagantly and he paid, he's obsessed with celebrities and being surrounded by celebrities. So he starts paying celebrities to go out with him. Uh, you know, it, it was reported in the book about him that came out in 2018, Billion Dollar Whale by the former Wall Street Journal reporters, that he would pay Paris Hilton $100,000 just to go out with him for a night. That's hot. And when Amazing. you've got $800 million in the bank, it's not that big a deal, I suppose. <laughs> you called uh, his scheme one of the biggest embezzlement schemes in the history of money. I mean, how big are we talking? Well, so he ended up siphoning $4.5 billion out wow. of the fund. And when the Justice Department eventually cracked down on him, they seized the billion dollars of his assets where he was you know, parking the money in kind of a long-term laundering scheme. Meantime, Praz has gone from being a Grammy winner to a serious documentary filmmaker, and he's interested in politics. Uh, he volunteers for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. He starts getting invited to fancy fundraisers. It's around Obama's re-election campaign in 2012 when Lowe re-enters the picture. He, he learns about Praz's connection to Obama. What does he ask the rapper to do? They had, they had interacted once, so I think in about 2008, after um, when Obama was running, and he remembered that Praz was a real big supporter and had started being a surrogate. So in 2012, with another election on the horizon, Jolo starts you know, making inroads to see if he can work his way in to get closer to the White House. And bear in mind, he had done this in Malaysia. He was very close with the prime minister who had pulled into his corruption scheme. He had done it with officials in the UAE. So he knew the playbook here, and he thought, well, if I can do it in those countries, why can't I do it in America? So he finds out through Praz that these fundraisers are going on. They're $40,000 ahead. He wires money to accounts connected to Praz. And Praz, at the meantime, is being recruited and sort of mentored by a very powerful and well-connected Democratic Party fundraiser named Frank White Jr. Frank White Jr. Mm -hmm. is related to Michelle Obama through marriage, and he was a top fundraiser for uh, the Clintons and also for Barack Obama in 2008. And by 2012, Frank White Jr. is the vice chair of fundraising for the Obama campaign. 
So Frank White Jr. is is sort of you know uh, helping Praz climb the ladder of of, of of fundraisers for Obama and gr- grow his career as a political fundraiser as well. Uh, Jolo wires money to these accounts uh, controlled by Praz. Frank White tells Praz, "I need help getting more people to these fundraisers. Can you help me?" Praz says, "Sure thing." He starts inviting his friends. But when you invite a friend to a $40,000 a head fundraiser and the friends say, well, I don't have that kind of loose money, Prowse says, don't worry, I've got you covered. <laughs> well, this was in 2012 and yeah. Prowse, looking back on it, says he didn't realize that these that he was about to start violating Federal Election Commission, FEC, guidelines and laws that govern American elections. You cannot take foreign money and bring it into a campaign. You cannot um front money for other people and and have those people claim that it's their own we here in america are pretty jaded by political spending at this point and i will tell you i imagine that this goes on to some degree you know but this was done rather brazenly and they got caught yeah so it might be legal to buy everyone a bottle in a new york city nightclub but it's not legal (laughs) to buy everyone's political donations (laughs) okay so that's right do we know do we know why uh, Low wanted to get so close to Obama. What's I mean, other than just you know enjoying the company of celebrities, was there an actual plan here? We don't know if there was an actual plan, but I think we can look back on it all and see that he wanted to to show his benefactors in Malaysia um, that he was getting close to the U.S. government. Um, whether or not he thought he was going to be able to buy off Barack Obama, who knows, that would be a little bit far-fetched, but Frank White Jr. was quite close to Barack Obama, and Joe Lowe started making real efforts and succeeded in getting Frank White Jr. pretty fabulously wealthy through his own, through his own loose cash. Yeah, so Frank White married, uh, you mentioned the connection to Michelle Obama. His sister is married to Michelle Obama's cousin. And there's a party in Las Vegas at one point. Can you uh, talk to me about what happens at, at Lowe's hotel room uh, and what Praz and White uh, tell Lowe it's going to take uh, to get uh, some prized objective of, of Lowe's? Yeah, so it was days before the, the 2012 election. And this was Joe Lowe. This is when Joe Lowe was at his, really at his height of his powers and his influence. He went from a guy who would pay celebrities money to hang out with him to a guy that celebrities wanted to hang out with because he was investing in projects. He had bought himself a stake in Sony Music and a seat on the board. He had funded Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese's film, The Wolf of Wall Street. This was all done legitimately, bear in mind. No one knew that he that, that his money was illegally amassed. He appeared to be... Um, and actually passed vetting by Leonardo DiCaprio and the studio as a legitimate Malaysian businessman. So at this moment, he throws himself this epic, over-the-top, never-seen-anything-like-it-before birthday party in Las Vegas. He builds a gigantic tent out in the desert. There's the Hollywood actors. There's New York bankers. It's a real uh, who's who of American uh, society. And at this point, Jolo is approached by Praz and Frank White and says, hey, we want to talk about that favor you had asked. Now, the favor, 
to your listeners is that Jolo said he wanted a photo with Barack Obama. Jolo says to them, let's talk about it after the party. I'm having an after party in my hotel suite. So Praz and Frank White go to the hotel suite as directed later that night. They walk in and they try to talk to Jolo there. It was a little loud in the suite. He couldn't really hear each other because somebody had driven a Ferrari into the suite and was <laughs> revving the engine. <laughs> so so, so they say, let's go out on the balcony and talk there where it's quiet. So they go out on the balcony and they sit down, Jolo flanked on either side by Praz Michelle from the Fugees and Frank White, the powerful Obama fundraiser. And Praz says to Jolo, you know, we know you want this photo, Joe, but it just, it's almost impossible to make that sort of thing happen. It's just not, it's not likely. It's not in the cards. But, you know, $20 million, that might change your odds. That might improve things for you. And Joel wow. looks at him, says, okay, no problem. And sure enough, wow. at the end of the month, after Obama's reelected, there's a White House holiday party. And Frank White follows through on his part of the deal. He whisks Jolo through security checkpoints. He's not invited. He's not on the list, but Frank White gets him in, sticks him in line with everybody waiting to have their photo taken with, with Barack and Michelle Obama. Jolo gets his photo taken. And long story short, once Jolo gets the photo, Frank White gets his $20 million. Incredible. And if I understand correctly, he actually tells Praz, I would have, this is chump change, basically. I would have paid a heck of a lot more for this picture with yeah. Obama. Yeah, he eventually gets it, and he says to Proz, "I would have given you, I, I would have paid a hundred million dollars for this photo." Okay, <laughs> someone who really likes Barack Obama. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and someone who needed clearly to have proof to show people back in Malaysia, and and perhaps even at this point already China. And this is a part we don't know, but hopefully mm. we'll figure out over time that he had connections to the to the U.S. government. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Here comes the plot twist, right? Near the end of Obama's presidency, the U.S. government seizes about a billion dollars worth of Lowe's assets over corruption in the 1MDB fund. And you write that even Leonardo DiCaprio is forced to surrender some gifts from Lowe, like a, a Picasso painting and Marlon Brando's missing Oscar from On the Waterfront. <laughs> you don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And with U.S. authorities on his trail, Lowe next tries to get in with Donald Trump's administration. So who does Lowe recruit to try lobbying the new administration? Well, I think he sees the beginning of the Trump administration, that the things are a little chaotic, and he says, aha, this looks like an opportunity. So he reaches out to his old politically connected American friend, Praz Michelle. And Praz says, well, I don't know anyone in the Trump administration, but let me see if I can help you. And at this point, it's worth, I think, reminding listeners that there's no, there's no illegality that's really, that's really sort of uh, known about by Pros at this point, right? Yes, the the U.S. government has cracked down on on Jolo and, and and has seized his assets, but Jolo says, 
well, this is just a legal problem. It's a misunderstanding and I need someone to help me out. I need, I need lawyers. I need representation. So Praz starts trying to help him find American lawyers and representation who are close to the Trump administration. He connects him to Rudy Giuliani. Joe Lotz tells mm. people that he gave Rudy Giuliani a retainer fee of, I believe it was eight or $10 million. Giuliani wow. denies that. Um, he gives, uh, he eventually does hire legitimately hires former New Jersey governor and presidential candidate Chris Christie, another Republican who at the time was close to Trump. And Chris Christie is legally retained, ultimately, and ends up taking $15 million in a settlement from uh, um, between uh, the Department of Justice uh, that, that they ended up setting aside for the legal representation for Jolo. To further the, the sort of extra-legal schemes, he says to Praz, can you help me get some more people who can help me with this and who can help get in even closer with Trump and shut down these investigations? So Praz reaches out to an old friend, a woman named Nikki Lum Davis, who was a Republican donor. And she, in turn, reaches out to one of her Republican contacts, a man named Elliot Broidy. And the mm. three of them sort of form the core of this, I, I call it in the story, this kind of wacky, zany crew. It feels like a you know, like a bad Rat Pack reboot. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's cozying up to China, right? And here's where things get even weirder, because when some of the American lobbyists go meet Lo in mainland China, he's accompanied by a high-ranking Chinese official. And what does that Chinese official want? They uh, find Jolo accompanied by a man named Sun Lejun, the vice minister of public security for the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. And Lejeune oh. now has something that he needs. So now they're not getting requests just from Jolo, but they're getting requests from this <laughs> Chinese minister. And a Chinese minister, he needs a Chinese fugitive returned to China, a man by the name of oh. Guo Wenji. Guo Wenji is currently in prison in New York after he was arrested just, just at the start of the trial. And we do not have enough time to cover his entire story. <laughs> but in 2017... Uh, he was simply known as a fugitive criminal from the Chinese government and someone that the Chinese government was desperate to get back. Supposedly a dissident who may have been a double agent, friends with Steve Bannon, right? <laughs> exactly. Well said. And so they want him back. And who among the Americans agreed to push for this Chinese billionaire Guo's uh, release back to China? Pretty much everyone who who who, <laughs> who they could contact. And they were very clever about who they contacted. So Elliot Broidy um, is doing it for, uh, as part of his con contractual agreement with Jolo for, for the, you know, $50 million. If he does it by this date, $75 million, 75 million. If he does it even sooner, bear in mind, he also got $8 million at, at the outset and $1 million just to show up to the meeting. So Elliot Broidy is, is working on it. Nikki Lum Davis, that original crew. Um, Praz was sort of a connector here. He, he, he helped Jolo find these people. Um, and then the, probably the most successful person they, they then connected to through Elliot Brody went to Steve Wynn, Steve Wynn, the owner of, of casinos all around the world. And it was very good timing to get Steve Wynn on this, uh, project because Steve Wynn was awaiting licensing for two of his casinos being built in Macau which is a Chinese protectorate at the time. And Steve Wynn ends up having several meetings and phone calls over a period of months 
And he really starts carrying the ball on this. He takes a docket of papers to President Trump, shows him how bad a guy Guo Wenji is, why they need to send him home. He's an accused rapist. He's accused of bribery. He's a bad, he's a, he's a bad hombre, as Trump might call him, and they got to get him out. Because <laughs> all of this is, is being done through non-official channels, it doesn't go anywhere. Well, this all comes to a head in a very, very bizarre meeting in New York City, which starts with a walk around the Four Seasons Hotel. Can you describe that unusual scene for me? Proz gets a call to show up at the Four Seasons and he and that there'll be a note for him at the front desk. So he walks up to the front desk, opens this little envelope, and the note says that he needs to walk around the block twice and make sure no one is following him. <laughs> so he does this, and it's in the middle of Manhattan. He knows the area, comes back in, gets another card. It says, go up to this room on a high floor. Proz does this, goes to this room. He's looking out at the city. He's sitting there wondering what's going to happen. He told me later he was quite worried at this point that his physical safety was at risk. He didn't know what was about to happen to him. And eventually, after about a half an hour, two Chinese men in suits come to the door. They take his phones and they lead him to the penthouse suite where he finds that same minister, Sun Lejeune. And a meeting oh. ensues that is truly bizarre and this incredible scene from Praz's life and from this case. Well, they argued about a cigarette. <laughs> well, first they argue about a cigarette because Praz ate cigarettes and Sun Lejeune wants to smoke a cigarette, and Proz gets up and says, oh no, I can't be near the cigarette. And <laughs> Sun Lejeune shoots him this dirty look and says, uh, who is this guy? You know, who is this Who is this wimpy American I have to deal with, right? And Proz told it in more colorful language that I'll save, not, not radio friendly. <laughs> and they sit down and, 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 and Sun Lejeune has a little temper tantrum and says, I can't get these meetings and who the, who the hell does the American government think they are? They won't meet with me. And so I've got a problem. Let me tell you my problem. The problem is we need this man, Guo Wenji, back in China, and I've got plenty to offer the U.S. government in return, including, chief among them, three detained Americans being held in Chinese prisons, one of whom is a pregnant woman nearing in her third trimester. And I can't even get Jeff Sessions to respond to me despite making this offer. What should I do? What would you do? If you were me, the vice minister of secure of domestic security for the People's Republic of China, asks Praz from the Fujis. And Praz looks at him and says, well, this is a little above my pay grade, but if I were you and you're asking me, what would I do if I were you? I would send this woman home. You just told me she's a pregnant woman nearing the end of her pregnancy. Send her home, man. Well, hmm. that's, all, that's all the minister needed to hear. He pulls out his phone, puts it on speakerphone makes a call, speaking Mandarin, turns to Praz and says, when do you want her back? And Praz says, I don't know, tomorrow? Wow. And the conversation goes on, and he says, well, it's Friday, so we can't get her out tomorrow, but we'll send her back on Monday or Tuesday at the latest. Okay, hangs up the phone, and Praz says, just out of curiosity, who was that you were speaking to who could make something like that happen that fast? And the minister says, Xi. And it was the president who <laughs> said, he's the only person I speak to. So it was a phone call with Xi Jinping. Just to underscore how crazy this is, as you said, this is Praz from the Fujis brokering the release of detainees negotiating with the president of China through yeah. an intermediary in the security state. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and I think something that, that has not been discussed enough from this and that the jury certainly didn't get to hear is that, and he did it successfully. 
you know, and 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 the, and the government could say, oh, he was just doing it for money, or he was just there for the money. Well, well, maybe, but regardless, at that moment when the stakes were high and he was worried about his own welfare, he hears about an American woman who's pregnant, and he successfully negotiates her release, and she comes home, and the U.S. government has no idea how it even happened. And so there's one last moment of spy fiction in uh, Praz's arrest in 2019. He's walking down the street in November. Uh, so, you know, wh- what does he see and what is he charged with? What happens there? So this is about two years later. At this point, the federal government is all over this case. They're investigating him for the money. They're investigating his relationship with Jolo. So here we are in November 2019. He walks out of his apartment in New York City and so on. doesn't notice anything unusual. The street's filled with the normal type of people he'd see on his street. There's a guy with the phone companies working on some fiber optic cables. There's some people window shopping in front of the Versace store. There's a construction worker with a jackhammer. And he gets about 15 feet outside his door. And all of a sudden, everything stops and goes in slow motion as he sees someone point to him. All these people on the street turn and look at him and start walking towards him. And then a tall man comes out of a car on the other side of the street introduces himself as the FBI agent. (laughs) All of these people are not what they seem to be. They were undercover uh, government agents. They surround him, and the FBI lead agent explains they've got a warrant for his phones. He needs to hand over his phones. And he was charged with uh, a a series of crimes, right? And uh, like, why, you know, what are these crimes and why is he getting charged and no one else appears to have been in trouble over this case, despite the fact that so many other people are, are, are involved? There was already an earlier indictment for the FEC charges against him um, at that point. But then another year and a half goes by, and in 2021, a much larger uh, indictment known as the superseding indictment comes down, and it's and it has just compounded everything. And they and it's not just the FEC anymore. Now he's being charged as an unregistered foreign, a- foreign agent of the Chinese government and of using foreign money to influence American politics. and it's serious, and there are, and, you know, it's more than twenty years in prison um, if he's found guilty of all these things. Um, to answer your question, a lot of the other people involved were charged, but they ended up making plea deals or negotiating, or they were offered immunity deals with the government. In other words, if they cooperated in the government's investigation against Praz and agreed to testify against him, then they would not be punished themselves. In this case, the more powerful person at the top is Jolo. And the U.S. government has no way to get to him because he's living as a fugitive in China. But the one Mm. person they could get to and the one person that they saw that they could uh, indict and put on trial was Praz. And because he didn't take the plea, because he didn't plead guilty, because he didn't believe he had done anything wrong, because he believed that he had a right to to a trial... They really, they, they said, oh, you want a trial? All right, well, here it comes. And they threw the book at him. And the trial ended, as we all know, with these guilty verdicts. Here's where I want to sound the maple alert. We have a Canadian angle here, and I'd, I'd like to focus on these charges under FARA, the Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act. 
It requires people to put their name on a registry if they're lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. And this is a really hot topic in Canada because there are controversies about uh, Chinese interference in our elections with so-called Chinese police stations. So Canada's government is considering creating a foreign agent registry. Uh, you've been critical of FARA of the way the foreign agent registry was used here in the United States against PRAS. Why is that? Well, it, it's it's a somewhat broad um, and vague law that can be uh, utilized uh, in a discretionary manner by prosecutors. And I think that's part of the problem. And in this case, I think you can just see how it was applied differently to different people involved. So Steve Wynn, for his actions, well, he got a bunch of notices alerting him that he probably, that, that, that he needed to register for FARA, but he never did. So the government uh -huh. said, all right, you're not going to register. We're going to come after you. But they didn't come after him with a criminal suit uh, or indictment the way they did with Pras. With Steve Wynn, they just did a civil suit. You know, then Elliot Broidy was another man I mentioned who was involved. He pled guilty and then was very soon afterwards pardoned fully by President Trump. So this, mm -hmm. you know, and you can see why and the decisions that led to it. But I think when you zoom out and consider what kind of law FARA is, how it comes down to, to the discretion of law enforcement and prosecutors, that it is not necessarily, in my opinion, equally applied here. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to know what Pras says about this. I mean, you've interviewed him. Uh, what does he say about why, at, at the end of the day, why he got involved in all of this and what's his reaction? Well, I think he was shocked um, because it's quite a tall claim that the Justice Department is making. You're basically saying Pras from the Fugees, this man with no you know, history in, in politics, is the greatest agent of Chinese subterfuge in U.S. politics, in history, <laughs> you know, there, there's no <laughs> precedent for this. There's been a lot of shock and surprise, and I think Praz is still digesting it. There's not much he can say at the moment about his motivations at each step of the way because his lawyers will take this on appeal and they'll go to the appellate court. And so Praz still needs to be kind of careful what he says um, to people like me. But I can tell you that all along he has maintained. That he didn't know about FARA, no of these other people involved told him about FARA. Um, if he had simply registered and known that he needed to register, he would have registered. If, if registering some four pages of paperwork or 10 pages of paperwork would have allowed him to say, okay, fine, I'm a lobbyist for the Chinese government and avoid all of these things that have happened to him, he tells me he simply would have done it. He would have registered. And so now there's an appeal probably, and there's always a chance this wild story could take yet another twist. So thanks so much for uh, walking us through it, Michael. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure, and um, thank you for having me on. That's all for today. I'm Alex Panetta, and thank you for listening to FrontBurner. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.